uh, hey everyone. Um, it, I'm Sheldon Parthundil, as you know, uh, and Roshni Korean. So the two of us, we're going to be kind of guiding you through our next step in our Light the Way seminar, um, sort of a series of seminars. Um, Sheldon, record. Yeah, it's, it is recording, isn't it? Oh, I don't see it. No, I see, see it. it. It's recording. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's recording. Okay, cool. Sorry. Uh, yeah, no worries. Um, so yeah, uh, welcome to this once again. Um, you know, for us this week, we're kind of getting into our conversations about um, the theology of social justice and the theology of liberation. And um, yeah, for us, it's, you know, kind of digging deep into some interesting concepts. Um, but specifically, we wanted to be this, to have this very, very focused on the gospel this week. And um, specifically, meditations about the Samaritans, um, namely talking about who the Samaritans are, and why Jesus focuses so much on this particular group of individuals um, in various parables and stories about, um, you know, that are featured in the Gospels. So, uh, without further ado, let's get into it. Um, so, if could we please have somebody volunteer to lead us with an opening prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. Few of us just gathered here to discuss about your work uh, in uh, in your time, and then we bless uh, you. Bless us all, God, to listen to the words and then put into our practice in our life, daily life. Uh, we thank you for all the blessings you have given us during this COVID nineteen time. And I know we are separated from our own families, own dear ones, but your care and your uh, caring and your, your blessing is always upon us. Bless each and everybody who is joining to, uh, together today. And the other one who is not joining also, please bless them also and give us more wisdom and more power to uh, speak about you and uh, bring your name uh, into this world, whatever way we can, and uh, spread the words uh, to other people, uh, to the to our neighbors, to our friends, to the ones who are not heard about God or heard about Jesus. Uh, help us to continue to do what we are doing and bless all of us. The persons who are talking, especially Sheldon and Roshani, please bless them and give them more power and knowledge to discuss about today's matter. And we ask all these in the name of our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, thank you very much, Andy. That was a really nice prayer. Um, so yeah, let's get right into our content then. Um, so we want to start out with a little bit of a discussion, um, throwing just the term Samaritans at people. Uh, you know, we've heard the parable of the Good Samaritan ever since we were little kids. Um, but who exactly are the Samaritans? This is a it's a vital consideration for us in in discussing the gospel to understand the underlying social context that Jesus lived in at the time. So the Samaritans, um, who, by the way, still exist today, a very small community today, but they still exist. Are, are a specific sect um, that broke off from the Jewish community around the year 722 BC. Now, in that year, King Sargon II of Assyria invaded Israel, as is uh, related in um, the Old Testament, and Assyria pretty much swept um, the entire land of Israel. Um, and God, you know, kind of put this forward as a test because um, the people of Israel had fallen into idolatry and blasphemy and other, another serious social ills were plaguing the society. Um, and as a result, God brought this army to come in and, and take over and, and uh, teach the Israelites a lesson, so to speak. Um, so this allowed, you know, a, a particular situation where the northern portions of Israel, which is what we know today as Samaria, um, or today existing in the West Bank, that is, uh, in, if you want a current political term. Um, so this particular area um, was predominantly um, settled by what are known as the 10 lost tribes. So two, only two tribes of Israel were allowed to remain after this time. Uh, the rest of the 10 tribes were scattered around the earth. At least that is what the, what the Bible tells us. And two of those tribes were uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Manasseh and Ephraim together 
became what was known as the tribe of Joseph. And it is essentially the children of the tribe of Joseph who we know today as the Samaritans. They live in the remainder of that area and they were the only remnants of the 10 lost tribes to not have been completely scattered from the land. So these Jews who decided to stay, uh, well, at this point, these Israelites who decided to stay, um, you know, mingled in with the various other communities that existed in the land, the Canaanites, the Philistines, etc., and they created a new community called the Samaritans. And um, well, pretty much like after that point, there were only two tribes who today where most Jews of the world are descended from. So um, these are the tribes of Judah and the tribes of Benjamin or the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, I should say. Um, so pretty much most um, major Jewish communities in the world descend from these two tribes, whereas the other 10 tribes were you know, expelled from the land around this time. So these two communities, obviously there's this, this tribal factions that have begun to exist in the, in the nation of Israel at this time. But a couple hundred years later, um, the, the two remaining tribes who were left in what was then Israel around the, time, around the space of Jerusalem were expelled from the territory and sent into exile in Babylon, the Babylonian captivity under King Nebuchadnezzar, if we all remember, with, um, with Daniel in the, in the lion and the cave. That happened around that time. That was around 580 BC, around there. Um, and pretty much at that point, the Samaritans were the only remnants of the Jewish community to be left within the land of Israel. So at the end of the captivity, when the Jews returned from Babylon, um, the customs of the Samaritans and the Jews had diverged considerably. Many things are in common. The Samaritans still use the five books of the law that Moses gave. Um, the, what that we call the Torah. And um, they still do use these books. However, one of the biggest issues of contention between them and the Jews um, at that point in time was um, the belief that Mount Gerizim, which is in the northern part of, um, of the Holy Land, uh, next to the city, uh, the Palestinian city of Nablus today, um, was the real location of the holy abode of God. And it was not the Temple Mount in Jerusalem as the Jews believed. You know, you guys remember, of course, when Jesus does the cleansing of the temple, that temple um, is located today um, in what is now called the Dome of the Rock. Um, it's now a masjid. And um, well, essentially the location of the of the Dome of the Rock, there is a, a, a place called the Foundation Stone under that golden dome. And that is rumored to be where the a location of the original temple was. The Holy of Holies was supposed to have been on there. Even to this day, Jews do not step onto uh, the Temple Mount, simply because they believe it is far too holy to even walk up to it. So um, suffice to say, uh, there was great hardship and discrimination that the Samaritans faced at this time. Um, the Jewish community gradually and, well, pretty quickly became the, uh, the dominant power in the region again, um, you know, subduing the Philistines and the Canaanites who had begun to take their power back in the area. And um, by the time of Jesus, Jews held the undisputed sovereignty in this area. And the Samaritan people were, um, were not allowed to have their own independent system. Samaritans were not allowed to become part of the temple authorities. They were not allowed to um, you know, hold positions of great political or spiritual power in the Holy Land. And um, Samaritans were essentially segregated and discriminated against in society on a very endemic level. Um, Jews would not drink from the same wells as Samaritans. They would not eat the same food. Um, Jews would not associate um, marriages were a whole other issue of incompatibility. And for the most part, Jews uh, looked at Samaritans as fundamentally inferior. While Jews were more than were more than happy to get along well with the various other uh, Gentile nations that surrounded the land of Israel, including the Canaanites and the Philistines, they refused to agree with the Samaritans because they believed the Samaritans to be heretics. They believed them to have betrayed the Jewish faith in its authentic form that they believed. And thus, as a result, the Samaritans were treated very, very poorly. And again, this is, the, this is the, what you need to understand walking in and understanding what the Samaritans are, are and who they are and what role they play in the gospels and why Jesus spends so much time talking about this very marginalized, very excluded community. So, um, so Roshni, I believe this is, yeah, you're, you're yeah. taking on this one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so Jesus speaks a lot about the Samaritans, right? Um, and the Samaritans are referred to quite a lot in the Bible. So we know from the Old Testament and from mentions in the New Testament that there is this rift, right, that Sheldon spoke about um, that's been, you know, um, over over like some over over like years and years of time there has been like you know that that conflict between these these people because of these uh religious differences right but ultimately when you look at um two uh two instances in particular where jesus interacts with samaritans um and um that's jesus heals 10 men with leprosy and jesus speaks to um a samaritan woman uh you realize that Jesus ultimately, his ultimate message is to love beyond borders, um, beyond boundaries, boxes, binaries, and bodies, right? So love is what will move us from inaction to action and from judgment to compassion. So, okay, so this, um, this example right here, right? Luke chapter seven, verses 17, 11 to 19, Jesus heals 10 men with leprosy. So to recap, actually, could we have someone read it, read this passage um, out loud? Maybe that's better. Instead of me doing a quick recap. Does anybody have their Bibles on hand? I can read it. Thanks, Ash. Uh, so Luke 17, 11 to 19. Yes. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, threw, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except for this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Jesus said, again, to repeat Ashley, right? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner, right? So only the Samaritan man with leprosy came back to thank Jesus and express gratitude towards the Lord Almighty, right? This man who was a foreigner was marginalized not only because of his race, but also because of his disability, his leprosy, right? Um, he, Jesus recognized, um, his gratitude is recognized and appreciated by Jesus, um, the Messiah who saw the potential in this man beyond his skin and body, right? Jesus saw the soul beneath his body and his skin while the man was sick with leprosy and after he was healed also because Jesus said to him, your faith has made you well, right? Thank you for, for, for your gratitude, right? He, he's acknowledging um, that no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner, right? So I think this story really begs us to ask, what do we really mean and what do we, <clears throat> and when we say the words like marginalized, outcast, or other, right? What do we mean when we're referring, when we're using these words, right? Marginal to what? And cast out by whom and from what? Um, other or different by whose or what standards, right? Um, because they certainly are not Jesus's or God's standards, right? Jesus encountered and healed and saved our whole range of individuals. Um, male or female, healthy or ill, saints or sinners, right? Those within the community, those out, outcasted from the community. He saw no divisions or boundaries between peoples and instead he talked to, healed and loved all. He spoke with and interacted with everybody and saved them from all kinds of illnesses and sicknesses. He did not shy away or cast them out, but welcomed and saved them, right? And so, I think this story in particular, right, and all of Jesus' healings, uh, heal, uh, it, it begs us to ask the question, right, and think about how society conceptualizes what a normal or healthy body is versus an unhealthy, right, or abnormal body. But I think, you know, we can, we can ask ourselves what kind of bodies are seen as desirable, enviable, beautiful, or normal, and and right and but how would how what would Jesus say to that? What would Jesus say um, to our high standards of what an ideal human should look like, right, or be like in terms of 
ability, intellect, or creativity, right? And how would Jesus pe treat people who, who look or, or think a little bit differently, right? Um, what kind of personal stigmas and systems of discrimination exist right now for people whose bodies look different, who, you know, who are, who are capable of different abilities, right? Who, whose, whose limbs perhaps don't match in the traditional sense in the way that um, our limbs do, right? What, but do, are we able to see the potential beyond every single human, beyond their skin and body, right? And see them for the soul that they really are. What, so what do you guys think? What kind of like what kind of standards have we set in our society? Like what what do we think? What kind of bodies are seen as desirable or normal? Um, and what do you think Jesus would say about that? I think a lot of the standards are like you know thin. <laughs> white, <laughs> blonde Thin, hair, white. straight hair, straight. or for guys, I'm not really sure about guys, maybe guys could speak to it in a different way, the different pressures of what a, you know, but thin and, you know, for males, maybe like having lots of muscles or like being hairless, which is not a, a possible really. Um. Especially for us, our people. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I feel like Jesus would have been like, you know, you are my brother and my sister and, and you know, become as you are. <laughs> Come as you are. I'm, exactly. Yeah, well, all are beautiful. So according to Jesus, there is no, nobody ugly, nobody is bad, nobody is uh, a different color or brown or black or white. He treats, uh, he treated everybody the same. So we should yeah. also do the same, but yeah. nowadays it's not like that. Mm -hmm. No, exactly, yeah. exactly, Rachel. And it's not like that, right? Because I think we see so many homeless people on the street, right? And mm -hmm. often homeless people in Canada, all over the world, actually, if we're being realistic, yeah. they they're they're homeless, right? Because they face a number of of, of real life difficulties, right? And uh, uh, often a really common one would be mental health issues, right? And so, what kind of like stereotypes or stigmas like how do we look at homeless people right like when we when we're walking down the street how do how are they viewed right and how, like when people live on the margins of society what does that do to their soul what does that do for like their connection to to Jesus and God how are they able to be there you know be true to their divine selves when um so much is you know corrupting their spirits Maybe we'll move on to the next example now. Sheldon, can you get the slide? So Jesus talks with the Samaritan woman. So this, this, pas this passage was a bit long, so I'll just do a quick recap um, to get us going. Jesus um, talks with the Samaritan woman talking with this woman was a scandal okay at the time and she asked him herself how can you ask me for a drink me a woman of Samaria right because this woman at the time she knew that a Jewish man should not be talking to a Samaritan woman let alone drinking from the same vessel as as her right and Jesus's disciples too they were shocked when they saw Jesus talking to this woman by the well and interacting with her Right. Um, and but nobody had the guts to ask him, but why were you talking to her? You know, <laughs> um, and like this, we all have I think we've all experienced these moments where we, you know, we we judge others for for their beliefs, for the way the way they look, the way they, you know, the way the way they express themselves. Right. Um, but I think this whole conversation, really, that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman is about him challenging gender and social norms, right? Because he offers this desp despised, unnamed female Samaritan the water of life. He offers her a sip of eternal life, right? And he, he, he sees her for who she is. Um, he does not pass any moral judgment. 
um, on the woman because of her marital or sexual history, right? Um, or her current status. It's mentioned in the story that she's had five husbands, but she doesn't have a husband yet. So, but he doesn't cast any judgments on her based on this, right? He just, Jesus sees and knows all things. So he was aware of her history uh, before she, she before she even said a word, right? And And that prompted the woman to say, sir, I see that you're a prophet right? Because he, he saw this, he, he knew of this, he knew of her history, right? Um, and that, once the woman realizes that she's face-to-face -face with, with the prophet, she asks the biggest question of, of her time, which is, where is the proper place to worship, right? As Samaritans believe that we're supposed to worship at this one temple, it's one place, Jews believe another place, what's the real answer, right? And Jesus ultimately answers, it doesn't matter where you worship because God is spirit, right? All that matters is that you worship in the spirit and in truth, right? Um, and so, like, I think it's really important for us to think about how our Marthama Malayali community looks at Hindus, Muslims, right? Or other indigenous spiritual, um, spiritual practices. Um, how could we better engage in interfaith dialogues with these communities, right? Because there's all these different common spiritual threads between all world religions, right? Um, Christ himself demonstrated uh, that to us, right? And when we're trying to exemplify and be like Christ, we also need to think about how, what are the ways we think, like how are the ways that we think of others similar to like how the Jewish elites thought at the time or, or, or are they more in line with how Jesus thought and acted, right? That's what I think our current, like are we always have to be reflecting on because the, the systems of, the, of that time were, are, are very much like the systems that we're living in now, right? And so the problems that Jesus faced then, we're facing the same problems now. And so the lessons are still, still um, applicable, right? So when we um, think about how to mirror the Samaritan at the individual level, right, with other people, um, in our relationships, in our relationships with others, we have to show radical love and compassion for all, um, especially those who are different from us, right? Because Jesus himself, he breaks social and gender conventions all the time throughout his ministry, right? Um, by healing that the Samaritan man with leprosy and by casually engaging that Samaritan woman in conversation. Um, he breaks open the boundaries between um, outcaster, outcast and insider, healthy and unhealthy, male, female, rejected people and chosen people. Um, he says there's no such thing, right? Um, God's grace is literally available to everybody is what he, he teaches us, right? Um, and so it doesn't matter, right? Whether you're like how you are practicing your faith Right? What what Matt, what Matt, what other people are, are are saying or judging or thinking about you? As long as you yourself are are in line with um, Christ-like teachings and and your connection and which is what restores your connection to God, right? Yeah, Sheldon. I just had to unmute myself there. <clears throat> so in regards to, you know, discussing the multiple levels of what marginalization will look like in our society, we can really understand as the, with these examples that Roshni has provided, how the Samaritans are used by Jesus as a teaching tool to criticize a lot of these ways of hierarchically organizing society that humans had created, you know? It's abundantly clear when we read the gospel, when we read the New Testament as to exactly what the kingdom of heaven looks like. You know, I bring everyone to our very favorite, uh, you know, biblical verse, Galatians chapter three, verse 28, which says, you know, there is neither, there's neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female for all are equal in Christ Jesus. All people who are, are, are present in, in the heavenly kingdom are all treated with the same degree of kindness. When Peter goes to fall asleep on the rooftop in Joppa and has his miraculous vision where God tells him to kill and eat. And, you know, he simply says, 
I've never killed anything unclean before. I've never eaten anything that goes against the laws that you've ordained. And God says, do not call unclean what I call clean. When God created human beings, it didn't matter what nation they came from. They are all part of his creation. They all, they all have a part of him inside them, right? You know, when, when did, did it ever say in the Bible what color Adam was when, when he was forged from the clay? I mean, he was probably somewhat clay color, I imagine, when he first came out. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we don't, we don't fully understand that what God is saying by doing that is that the progenitor of all humanity, the first human, we are all connected there. We all go back to creation in the same way. You know, we all take part in all of those same the same, um, uh, the same blessed miracle of creation. We all share that equally as our birthright. You know, that's what Jesus does so much throughout his ministry. He emphasizes that the whole notion that there are chosen people. Well, there are, there are, there are the physical Israelites, but there are spiritual Israelites as well. People who, who all across the world are marginalized, who are downtrodden, who are equally worthy of sharing in the birthright of salvation as any other nation on earth. And Peter says, when he wakes up from that dream, you know, I realize now that God does not show favoritism. God does not show favoritism, but loves men and accepts men of all nations who fear him and do what is right. And, you know, again, that is the, the, under, the underpinning towards the entire gospel, that this, this option must be existing to uplift those who are poor and downtrodden and ensure that, that they have the fair shot at equality that everyone does. Now, these various elements of the intersectional calculus, you know, that the Samaritans play this beautiful role of criticizing gender roles, criticizing the color barrier, um, the racial barrier that existed at that time, um, the religious barrier as well. But one, one thing that, you know, helps us remind ourselves how important the gospel still is for our every single day, our modern days, is when we understand who the Samaritans still are today. As I mentioned before, they still exist. And one thing I didn't mention before was while the Samaritans still exist in their small religious community as well, they also exist on a much grander scale as what we know today as Northern Palestinians. So these are people from pretty much anywhere of the Northern part of the West Bank, like Jericho and above. So, uh, well, Jericho and Ramallah and above there, um, in and around Nablus, Mount Gerizim, and all of the traditional Sumerian heartlands. So Samaritan people, we still, they still exist today. We, we, we should understand that they still play a vital role in the daily life of the region, even to this day. And how much has changed? over 2000 years. You know, we, we speak a great deal about the advances that modern society has, and yet the Samaritans to this day are still being treated the same way they were 2,500 years ago. You know, when I was seven years old, I, I had the opportunity to, to visit Israel and Palestine with my family. And, um, you know, we went on, on the pilgrimage, you know, the, 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 the great pilgrimage to, um, to Bethlehem and to Jerusalem. And, you know, going into the Palestinian territories, you, it's, it's something that is never scraped from your mind. The squalor, the poverty, the oppression that Palestinian people still live in every single day. There is no running water in many, many municipalities, especially in Gaza, which is on the other side of the Palestinian territories. Um, many people are being displaced from their homes. Um, you know, the lines between Jewish settlements and Palestinian villages is, it's, it's, uh, it's very strict lines. There are very strict fences that go between there and Palestinians may not cross. You know, we see a, an existence of real segregation that still goes on till this day. And we want to talk about social progress, you know, let alone the rest of the world. Even the land with which Jesus preached the gospel on is still facing the same problems with sexism, racism, religious discrimination, etc., as it did 2,000 years back. And that's truly remarkable for us to look at, you know? The state of discrimination, segregation, police brutality that the Palestinians have been subjected to for um, the past 70 years and beyond, um, even previously under the Ottoman Empire, where um, where Turkish rulers treated the local Arab population with a great degree of prejudice, um, 
you know, this, this degree of treatment uh, and, and this degree of poverty and oppression has often been compared to the black folks of the United States or indigenous folks in both Canada and the United States and, and, um, and also Dalit and untouchable communities in, in our own India. And, um, you know, these various populations have worked together and formed, a cre you know, created bonds of solidarity between these different groups um, in order to help each other learn from these situations of oppression and understand how they can apply the gospel to their own circumstances, which we will discuss just in the next heading. Um, but what exactly does this matter to us? You know, I'm, I'm sure you're wondering, uh, you know, I'm talking to you about this very abstract, uh, but very real uh, political conflict that is still existing today. What connection do we as the Martima community have to the Christians of Palestine? You know, uh, a great deal of, 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 of advertising in the media, for example, often portrays Palestinians as, uh, you, know, you know, well, for one, almost entirely Muslim, which is not true, by the way. Um, out of the 13 million Palestinians in the world, 20%, leaning on 25%, are Christians. And many of them belong to churches which are in direct communion with our church, uh, including the Anglican uh, communion, the Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics, uh, various uh, global churches all exist in Palestine. And a great number of these people um, follow the same faith that we do. So if there is a, a concern among so many that, you know, supporting someone of different faith, this is a nation where so many people, roughly the same percentage of Palestinians who are Christians, it's roughly the same percentage of, of Malayalis who are Christian. So putting it into context, there's a great deal of similarity between the countries. Both of these uh, spaces have had very negative experiences with colonization, uh, very negative experiences with, um, with resource displacement and land uh, removal, land theft, which has existed at the hands of uh, an occupying power on the lands that they are legally entitled to own. And you know, not even in these very basic abstract similarities between Kerala and Palestine, do you see a lot of, of commonality there. But the Martha Church, as we all know, has a very well-known reputation as a missionary church, meaning the church in terms of its mission has put that at the forefront of its entire church activity. So much uh, money, you know, per capita from our wider Martha global community goes towards working in uh, the medical field in underprivileged communities, goes towards evangelism in these communities, goes towards environmental restoration of these communities, helping to empower uh, democratic uh, processes, helping to empower self-determination. This is something that the Martha Church has engaged in, especially, well, in our own country with Dalit communities, but um, all throughout the world, there has been a, a strong feeling of solidarity in the Martha community that has gradually over the years with the depoliticization, the disinterest of the global Martama community, it's become less and less a part of our daily agenda. The notion of not only standing in solidarity with other minority Christians throughout the world, but also with minority populations in general. So, you know, the Martama Church has played a very active role in the World Council of Churches. As you all know, for I'm sure you listen to the songs all the time, the Maraman Convention is directly affiliated with the World Council of Churches. Uh, that event is held under the auspices of that particular uh, international body. And Maraman Convention is one of those places where out of all of Asia, Christians of every race, background, people of different religions have all come to celebrate in Maraman common spiritual threats. Meaning what I'm trying to say to you is, these sort of basic elements that the Martha community can use to engage with the cause of Palestine already exist in our community and they run so deep for so many generations now. In fact, in 2009, a great number of, uh, of theologians from uh, various Palestinian communities, Orthodox, Catholics, and Protestants, all came together to create the Kairos Palestine document, uh, which is based off of the earlier Kairos document from South Africa. Now, this was a theological response to apartheid and breaking down why the various elements of apartheid directly, you know, challenge the gospel. And of course, the situation that the Palestinians are, are currently under, you know, the deprivation of citizenship, deprivation of uh, basic uh, necessities in their communities is very similar to the apartheid situation. And their goals of, uh, you know, 
uh, you know, acquiring all the requisite civil, political, economic, and environmental rights as Israelis do is a, a battle that is very, very similar in a lot of ways to those fought by Dalits in India and by uh, the black majority of South Africa. And as a result, um, you know, the Martama community was serving on the, uh, the secretariat of the World Council of Churches at that time. And theologians from the Martama church, the CSI church, various other uh, Asian reformed churches in general, uh, played a very active role in advising the theologians of the uh, Palestinian uh, Kairos movement in creating the Kairos document. So, you know, as, as, as we say, the relationship between Indian Christian communities and the Christian community of Palestine goes back not only for the past several decades, but, you know, we are Syrian Christians. We are all, we come from the same Syrian Christian background, the same Syrian Christian heritage, you know? Um, you know, our, our close brother churches are the same ones who govern the Church of the Nativity, who govern, uh, you know, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in, in Bethlehem and Jerusalem. And, you know, in, in those ecumenical fellowships of taking care of the, of the places that we hold dear, there's a great deal of solidarity. But, you know, the, the, the degree of solidarity for the political causes that, that the, the lives of the Palestinian people depend upon have been lacking of these recent decades. So I think, again, it's upon us to think again, put ourselves into the, into the position of the Samaritans, understand what it would be like to be simply abandoned by the global society, local society at large, and understands ourselves where the Samaritans are today and what we can be as a global Christian community in being the good Samaritan towards the actual Samaritans as they exist today, the Palestinian people. So again, some, a little bit of food for thought. But as a result, we wanted to talk a little bit about this notion of liberation theology. When Jesus comes to talk about the politics of liberation, what does this mean? When, when, he, when he talks about freedom, you know, Paul, for example, throughout most of the New Testament, dwells a great deal on these uh, images of liberation. Uh, if some of you attended our, our conference a couple years back, uh, about five, four or five years back now, uh, we, we, we dwelt on the theme of unshackled. You know, Galatians chapter five, verse one, that centers around never allow yourself to be shackled again by the shackles of slavery. Why does Paul use these symbols of being prisoners? You know, I'm sure you guys have heard these terms before, prisoners for Christ, you know, slaves to Christ. What do, what do these terms mean? What is, the, what is the spiritual meaning of these terms? Well, it's not only... Not, it's not only the case that Paul was writing at a time when most of the early Christian church, most of the early Christian leadership were all in prison in Roman imperial jails and Jewish jails and trying very hard to preach the gospel in a time of great religious intolerance at a time where they were preaching wealth redistribution in, in a time of great hierarchical power, of great, uh, of great power of, of acquisition of wealth that was gripping the society at that time. It's not only... To, to give hope to the early theologians who were languishing in prison. It's a reminder that the earthly world that has been corrupted by Satan since the fall of Eden is in and of itself a jail cell for the spirits who wander creation. We as people who live on God's good earth are surrounded by structures of limitation, of structures of hierarchy that force situations of power and exploitative wealth on top of those who need freedom. So many people in our world do not have adequate resources to meet their basic needs. So many people in the world do not have the political, the civil freedom in order to express their voices. And perhaps no one it summarizes this better than the Palestinians, the, the Samaritans of the modern day. And for that reason, it's, it's vital for us to understand, you know, the teachings of, of various churches over the years, including the Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant churches, who emphasize certain core elements of the Gospels that help us to understand how, how spiritual salvation is impossible and it's, you know, inherently connected to earthly liberation. The, the removal of sinful systems of oppression on our earth 
are integrally connected to the spiritual work that we are to do as Christians. Because as it is mentioned very clearly in uh, the epistles, faith without works is dead. We cannot simply wear the cross, you know, put, put our faith on our sleeve and then leave it there. The cross is not just a decorative icon, it is a tool. It is a burden that each and every Christian carries along with Christ. And what that cross represents, that cross is the key to opening all of these doors, you know, opening all of these bars that reject millions of people, billions of people around the world in, back into conditions of poverty and oppression and ignominy. It's important for us to, to open those doors to our brethren by using the gospel as a tool to help them grow forward. You know, it's very important for us to understand why exactly Jesus came to this earth to be a, a carpenter, a lowly carpenter of all things. Well, it was because he was a worker. Jesus was a worker who used tools to create, to build something earthly with heavenly designs. And that's what we need to understand the gospel as. It's a guide, it's a guide, guiding light, a guidestone for us, you know, um, a, a system and a, and a series of principles that if applied in our daily lives, not only leads to spiritual salvation, but also to the liberation of the people all over the world who, who, who need it. But a, a couple of core elements, you know, that, that's our, a very metaphysical take on liberation theology. But what does, what does this necessarily entail? So the gospel, understanding it, um, is that in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, it's a very famous line that Jesus says, as you do to the least of these, so you do to me. This means that the gospel essentially gives a preferential option towards the poor. Whatever you do as a Christian should prioritize the interests of the most needy of your society. Look at it from their perspective. Understand what each and every single one of your actions as a Christian does to the weakest people in your society, the weak, the disenfranchised, the hungry, the homeless, the, the politically excluded, the environmentally disenfranchised. These are the people who we need to center in mission work, in, in the work of enacting the gospel in this world be it various indigenous communities around the world, outcast communities, um, you know, subject populations that are, that are removed to the fringes of society, such as sex workers, um, such as uh, um, you know, uh, factory workers, various other forms of menial labor, um, various other, uh, other communities where they are being actively taken advantage of. This is uh, the, these are the people who need to be at the center of the church. These are not people to be, to be gatekept, to be, to be removed from the church. The church needs to be a place, a beacon towards people who need spiritual guidance and need physical help. Secondly, there is the notion of the integral mission that includes both evangelism, not only preaching the gospel, but promoting the gospel with our everyday work. There is a necessity not only to preach the good news, but to show what the good news looks like every day. In every interaction we have, we understand, you know, it's vital for us to understand that just knowing we are Christians by our love is very important. But remember, if we, if we understand knowing, knowing we are Christians by our love, you know, that famous song, what are the two sides of love that God shows us, the divine love? Does anyone remember that word, agape, caritas, in, in Greek and Latin? Caritas is not only the term that we, we have for the love that we have towards God, but it's also the love that God has towards all of humanity. Caritas is also the place where we get the term charity from. You know, a little bit of a throwback to what we had covered in previous seminars. But caritas is not only faith, it's not only a direction of love to the Almighty, but it's being the instrument, the article for the love of the Almighty to flow through us and to the rest of humanity. 
As such, we need to understand that there are two things that we need as Christian believers. Both are equally important. And these are orthodoxy and orthopraxy, which are Greek terms, which refer to both the right belief, meaning the right intention, and the right, uh, the right understanding of God, and the right actions. Every single charitable work, every single um, social enterprise that we engage in has to be motivated by the right things, but also has to do the right things. It needs to be fighting poverty. It needs to be fighting disease. It needs to be fighting injustice. I know that sounds crazy. It sounds like a hell of a lot of work, doesn't it? Well, here's the thing. What Jesus came to bring is not an easy thing. The gospel is not a simple path to walk. It's very short. Gospel, if you, if you put all the gospel on a few pages, I think it's 70 pages at max. You know, put, it, put all four together. And that's a lot of overlap. There's quite a few verses that overlap. Not that much. And yet the demands that God makes of us, they are very great. They are very great. And they remind us to what degree the sin and the corruption of the society around us have, 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 have gotten right into our souls where not only do our actions not reflect these things, let, let alone our actions not reflecting these things, sometimes our own mentalities do not even reflect the grace and the glory and the kindness and the charity of God. And what is the root of that? We have to understand what is the root of the seven deadly sins, the most terrible things in our, our daily life, the, the, the very root of all the sin and corruption in our society. It's greed. It's hierarchical power. It's the creation of situations where marginalized people can continue to be exploited, can continually be taken advantage of by those who are wealthy, by those who are powerful. When, when any woman in society is trapped in a, in a situation where she is subjected to violence and subjected to dehumanization by her partner, the gospel is not being at 100%. Whenever there is a situation where a, an unarmed black man gets shot on the street for doing absolutely nothing, the gospel is not being at 100%. When a worker is stripped of his wages, when every homeless person who sits on the side of the road shivers, that is proof to us that there is still work to be done. And that is what liberation theology says. Nobody is free. We cannot be free spiritually unless we liberate everyone physically as well from all of these, these confines of poverty, of hunger, and oppression. And what we need to understand Jesus bringing is he brings a radical take, the most powerful thing and the hardest thing to do in the entire human experience, which is love. Love which rides over all things. Not only a blind powerful, all-encompassing love for God, but also taking that, that powerful love and being the mirror of that love for all of society. Jesus came to bring an uprising. He says, I have come not to bring peace. I have come not to bring a harmony. I have to come to, be, to bring a sword. I've come to bring conflict. Because Jesus came down and recognized that creation had fallen apart. Creation is still falling apart. We still abuse our human community. We still abuse our animal community. We abuse the plant community. We abuse every single factor and, and facet of creation in our own greed, in our own sin, our own lechery. And the systems of power, greed, violence, inequality that we've created necessitated the greatest sacrifice in the history of humankind. And what our duty as Christians is to make good on that sacrifice is to prove that Jesus didn't die in vain. Not only to take advantage of that sacrifice for ourselves, but to go out into the world and bring it to everybody. And as such, you know, the, the violation and the, all, of the, all of these various violations of the divine law need to be combated. These greedy earthly hierarchies need to be destroyed because there is no master but God. We need to understand that there is no one greater than God. And as such, 
liberation means the ending of, of war, the freedom for all nations, the ending of poverty and economic inequality with the equitable distribution of resources and wealth that is, that is specifically ordained in the book of Acts. Uh, especially chapters two to five, if you'd like to do some further reading. And of course, the preservation of the entirety of creation from humans harm and patterns of greed. Now, uh, I'm gonna turn things over to Roshni real quick because she's going to introduce us to our little bit of a discussion exercise. Yeah, because the two stories that we talked about previously, right? That I mentioned earlier with um, Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman, and Jesus um, healing the 10 lepers, one of the only one of who came back was a Samaritan to thank him. These two stories are about how Jesus himself interacted with Samaritans, right? In his time, in his day, this is how he walked about and did his thing, right? Um, this is how he interacted with vulnerable members of the community, right? Um, a woman and a disabled man, right? A woman, like, you know, uh, like Jewish men were not even supposed to touch Samaritan women. And here Jesus was asking to drink from the same vessel, right? So um, this is how Jesus interacted with Samaritans. But the story of the Good Samaritan is, um, it's a parable, right? And parables teach us lessons, right? That's the reason why Jesus uh, liked using parables um, to, to share and to and and to to share his message, right? Because um, when people listen to parables, it, they're they're like metaphors, right? And so you can they're understandable in in and applicable in a, in a, in to to a variety of situations and contexts, right? Um, so the story of the Good Samaritan, we say much about the Good Samaritan, right? There's a lot that we know uh, out there um, about the Good Samaritan. We we've you know just learned about um, everything what like you know what the Samaritans are supposed to embody, right? And and represent they're the poorest of the poor, right? Um, so why did Jesus's parable show a Levite and a priest as the other two travelers, right? Because what do you think that means, right? Because both these men, they were they were of the tribe of Levi, right? They are descendants of Aaron, um, who represented the spiritual and political elites of the time, um, both in the form of you know um, old Jewish um, Jewish royal uh, royal blood in in the line of Herod, um, and temple authorities of like Pharisees, right? Um, these were these wealthy and powerful elites. Um, they were the ones who who you know saw the man lying dead like lying um lying broken bleeding body right and and turned around and and, and showed their back to him right without helping him these are the types of men uh, of people that are routinely criticized for their pride and excessive emphasis on personal piety and power as opposed to aiding the poor actual help to the marginalized and to those most disadvantaged in society right and so Jesus's reference to the Samaritan as the good one, the good Samaritan, criticizes the hypocrisy of these of those people, right? Who calls themselves holy but did very little for those who were struggling, right? Um, and it's it's an interesting comparison, right? Um, between the lowly Samaritan, the Levite, and the priest, right? And so why do we think, what does this say about the relationship between faith and good works? Why do we think Jesus used the Samaritan of all people to show this message of compassion and true devotion, right? That the Samaritan, the lowest of the low was the one who helped the man, the foreign, the, the one who needed the help. What do we think about that? And what steps can we, can we ourselves take in our daily lives to be more like the Samaritan? 